Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and welcome to our Aerospace Nation series. We're really pleased that uh, General Jackie Van Ovost could uh, join us today. General Van Ovost is the commander of Air Mobility Command, which is the air component for US Transportation Command. Now, over the course of her distinguished career, um, she's held a variety of command positions and accumulated more than 4,000 flight hours in 12 different aircraft. And she recently served as the director of staff at headquarters Air Force, uh, in addition to being the Air Mobility Command Vice Commander. So welcome, General Van Oost, and uh, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Um, I've got to share with you all that six months ago, Air Mobility Command hosted a session attended by my executive uh, director, uh, General, I promoted him, Mr. Doug Berkey, uh, uh, where you discussed the mobility air force, the joint force needs, and how critical AMC is to enhancing joint force integration. He told me that it represented some of the most forward-leaning thoughts to come from your command in some time. So I hope we can expand on that uh, discussion, discussion today. What I'd like to do is start by asking you to describe your vision for how Air Mobility Command will deliver success to joint force operations in the future high-end fight. And uh, before we do that, just a short reminder to our audience, uh, please feel free to raise your hand uh, using the app and uh, submit any questions in the Q&A window anytime during the discussion. And then we'll get to that during the second half of the hour. So over to you, General Van Ovis. Thanks, Dave. Uh, thanks for this invitation. Uh, and uh, thanks for what you do there at the Mitchell Institute uh, for air power. Uh, just because we haven't been on this forum before, I want to get everyone familiar with what it is that Air Mobility Command does. You know, Air Mobility Command is responsible for one of the five core missions of the Air Force, that is rapid global mobility. We project and sustain the joint uh, force uh, global combat power right, by rapidly moving personnel, uh, material, supplies, and fuel in and through permissive and contested environments. Our speed, range, flexibility, and our responsiveness enable increased velocity for joint all domain operations. But Dave, that's not enough. It's not enough for this new revolution in military affairs. Information and the speed of decision-making are fundamental to the future success of all the forces to include Air Mobility Command. AMC can and will do more in this area. And that's what I wanna talk about. I wanna paint a picture of how we're accelerating rapid global mobility to ensure more connected, interoperable and resilient Air Force and Joint Force. It's how mobility can assist with sensing threats, processing and making sense of that information, providing the Air Force and the Joint Force increased awareness in order to decide and act ahead of our adversaries. You're pretty familiar with this concept. Here's how it applies to RGM. You got two KC-46s, they take off out of Guam and they nestle themselves deep into the Western Pacific in an orbit. They're already part of the Global Command and Control Network and they're accepted into a forward network where they become the key nodes forward. The, their arrival effectively establishes sort of a mini network forward and a beyond line of state capability that they have will ensure that we have resiliency 
across the network with the operations centers and with assets on site, whether that be Navy or F-35s, NGADs, Valkyries, right? Now the F3, the uh, tankers can provide sort of a double top off for our for our F-35s. Of course, they, they transfer fuel, but at the same time they're passing updated target information, which increases the battle space awareness uh, for the F-35s. Now the F-35s are also pushing, uploading into the KC-46 some new raw threat data that they picked up with their various sensors across the battlefield. And then the KC-46 is this forward node sort of processes that information, sends it back to a location where they can analyze that data and begin to develop countermeasures uh, for that, for that uh, threat. Now, at the same time, we're processing real-time battle space information. We're sending uh, notes to different folks across the mini network to include our contingency response forces who are forward at an austere location and then we auto autonomously let them know that they're going to get a two ship of F-35s at a certain point, and they need to be ready for an integrated combat turn uh, very quickly. Michelle Van Ovost, I don't know if you can hear me, but all of a sudden uh, you went uh, mute, but I see you're not muted. Um, we'll work through this uh, issue. I've got uh, uh, Camilla working it right here, but let's just stand by to see if we can't get audio back. Can you hear me? Yes, got you a five by now. Okay, so I was somewhere there deep in the Pacific talking about a resilient network, re recognizing that I needed a resilient network right here at home. Yeah, so well, I apologize. This is, this is, you don't need to apologize, but uh, to be uh, Candid, this is one of the challenges with uh, JADC2 and ABMS, and that is there needs right. to be assured connectivity uh, to 99.9 uh, .9 to the sixth yeah. uh, likelihood. Anyway, back over to yeah. you, uh, Joe Man. Yeah. yeah, so so basically, you know, I went through a, this, this discussion about how our tankers and our airlift aircraft get information share information in many networks and we've already proven edge processing we've proven you know fifth gen to fifth gen f-22 to f-35 to valkyrie uh connect connectivity that we can bring forward and and it's absolutely necessary that we become more interoperable and more connected to provide those resilient pathways because we will be in a degraded environment we will not always have a line all the way back beyond blind, beyond line of sight so as you know, you've got to have an instantiation of the of the war plan uh, forward in these mini nodes, uh, and and so that that's the that's the route we're on. When we think about how we're going to connect in the future, it's not just enough to bring mobility capacity. We must bring more capability to the joint force, uh, and that and that's the that's what we're trying to solve for right now, Dave. And, and that's why I, I, I came forward and, and that some of the thoughts that went into our strategy. Well, thanks very much for that insight. And, and oh, by the way, thanks so much for all that uh, your team is doing as well. So let's jump into some more of the specifics. I mean, it's a great scenario. Um, and what you described certainly depicts Air Mobility Command as providing must have um, rather than uh, as needed or enabling capabilities. And it demonstrates how AMC is gonna be critical to joint force operations in the future fight. 
So could you tell us a little bit more about how your command is getting after this transformation? Yeah, thanks, Dave. Look, we're, um, we're four main things. You know, first of all, just like you know, the rest of the Air Force, we are shifting our focus to the high-end fight. That's more of a kind of a cultural, how do we think, how do we compete? Um, we're maximizing our full spectrum readiness using our people, processes, and platforms, getting after specific things that are going to provide credible mobility capacity into the future. We're working on our joint force uh, interoperability uh, and capability, uh, aka the networks and uh, attributables, you know, mass, uh, and, and some, some of the things we're trying to experiment with to see how we can be more effective for the joint force. And then we're just flat out modernizing to ensure that we can be relevant into the future uh, so that we can really focus on uh, essentially the things we're going to need with respect to when we think about the joint warfighting concept and the joint concept for contested logistics. Well, we, one thing is the same. I'm, I'm looking at the service con ops and they're all screaming to me that we need to be more agile, more maneuverable, and they need a way to do that. And I'm seeing that way as Air Mobility Command. We have to be able to more, be more agile and more relevant, moving across strategically relevant distances uh, for the Air Force and for the Joint Force. We are working our way from the mere enabler, you know, from the, from the Middle East where we go do milk runs to essential to the maneuver force for the Joint Force. So and I'm willing to walk talk through all those. Yeah, no, that's a, that's very good, and and it's a nice segue into uh, kind of my next question for you that I think is also on folks' minds, and uh, obviously you alluded to in your earlier remarks that, um, like the rest of the Air Force, Air Mobility Command is reorienting, uh, uh, I don't want to say away from countering violent extremism, right. but increasing the focus toward and on great power competition. So could you explain in a bit more detail how AMC is shifting focus to high-end adversaries? And what are some of the practical consequences of this uh, transformation for AMC? I think so. So you're right. Look, hey, uh, past couple of decades, we've been very focused and, and doing really well. We've been tweaking and making more efficient what we're doing downrange. Right? Every year we're getting better at doing that work in sitcom and Afghanistan and looking at our modes and networks and making better decisions on logistics and, and pre-positioning and all that. So that's all important. Uh, we still need to have that piece. But frankly, we have to first change the way that we, Airman Billy Command Airmen, think about what we do, and then we need to have others think differently about what, what we bring, right? And, you know, the Army just wants us a couple C-130s to be there, not exactly sure. They just want to use them for airlift in, in, the, in the local theory, but not really thinking through the, the full measure of what we can do. So but it's upon us to really talk about and experiment with what we can do. So it's, again, it starts with our airmen. Uh, they have to have the, that competitive mindset that says that I've got to be thinking about the enemy. Uh, and, and what they're doing in logistics. And then we have to think about how, what we're doing in logistics of modes and nodes and platforms. And how do we get after utilizing the technology we have today, much less the advanced technology that's coming, that's coming our way. To do that, we have to give them time and space to experiment. We, we talk about we've been in a, in a fail safe culture. We need to move to more of a safe to fail experimentation culture for us. We, we need to, to try to do those reps and sets to see what else we can do for the Army, for the Navy, for the Marine Corps, uh, and for the Air Force? Because 
if, if we don't continue to experiment, if we don't experiment and, and not interested in that, we're not going to be valuable to the joint force. And frankly, we will, we will fail into the future. So it's, it's really relevant that we must, must do. We got to think about, you know, uh, we're going to be contested, as you probably know, right from when we force generate at a Travis Air Force Base. I can expect the lights to go up, that GPS will be degraded. You know, we may get partial orders on where we thought we needed to go. We got to get the airplanes airborne. We got to get them into some sort of network uh, on the resilient side, even if it's local to local to local, however we do that. Uh, so we have to be prepared to not have all the data right when we take off, right? And and so that's that's the that's the mindset we walk walk in with. And we have to also focus better with integrating with our allies and partners and their logistics flow and how we can leverage that a little better and their platforms and a renewed incentive to collaborate with industry who's doing, as you know, all the RDT&E and is trying to solve our problems. We have to expose the, more of those problems to them. This is not milk running anymore. This is this is high-end war fight that we, we're gonna be a part of. And and frankly, it's not cliche. We're, we, are, we are trying to take every talent that we have, every airman that we have and invest in them. So it's so important that we have airmen from diverse perspectives that come to the table to help us solve these wicked hard problems. So that's, you know, again, the first thing is we've got to get our airmen set to the right, to the right way. And then we have to install that. We have to give them the confidence that we value what they're doing, that we, we agree that these changes need to occur. So I've done a couple of things on the organizational side where I've set up a commander's initiative group that is solely focused on decision advantage for, for air mobility command, right? We don't usually talk like that, but we think about logistics flow. You were talking to Warren Berry some time ago, Lieutenant General Berry, um, the Air Force A-4. Logistics is noisy business. We got lots riding on the unclassified network with us and with our civilian partners. And we've got to think about how we make better sense of that data so that we can make better decisions before transportation solutions and locations are decided upon. And so our uh, commander's initiative uh, group is really diving into all the different pieces to make sense of that. We are looking at identifying what our toughest challenges are and trying to close those gaps in a very methodical way. We're not gonna eat the elephant all at once, right? I, I can't get full pure the logistics data from all the services and solve all the problems but I'm focusing on the problems I can solve right now ahead of the time before I have, you know, advanced battle management system where I should be able to see a lot more than I see right now. But I'm trying to come up with solutions that will add apps to ABMS and give you the, the log data streams that you're going to need to help make that sense so that we're ready. We are not waiting. And then we're doing something called strike teams where we get some great ideas from the wings we're bringing up the SMEs out of the wings, bringing them to the headquarters, pairing them with a general officer, you know, putting the staff, you know, as their resource and the whole innovation ecosystem to try to, to try to solve that problem in 30 to 60 days to see if we can solve it and scale it. And if we do, then we move it into sort of our weapon system areas where we, where, where we uh, vector that out. We got to show them that uh, we're listening to them. And we're trying to solve these problems. And that's going to instill in this culture to them that we need to change. Uh, and, and so that's on, the, on their side. I tell you, on the readiness side, what we're trying to do um, through our, our people, our platforms and our processes. On the people side, you hear us doing reps and sets uh, in the high-end environment. We're doing a lot of simulation. We have, we have distributed mission sims where we are fighting, flying with our CAF brethren. 
and we're doing ground-based simulations uh, in those sims. You may have heard our Mobility Guardian 21. This is the third instantiation of Mobility Guardian uh, where we are doing the high-end fight. We have about 1,500 people. It's coming up here in May. We have you know, five MAGCOMs and our joint partners uh, with us, and we are doing high-end environment work. They're dispersed across the northeast portion of the United States at six different fields. And we're going after, we're, we're going to have an op four, we're going to have an army, we're going to have artillery involved, uh, we're going to have a defensive counter air, and, and we're really going to step through how we would, in this case, do a humanitarian assistance disaster response in a fully contested area uh, to show that, that hope. This is a, and we're going to have cyber, we're going to have a red team cyber. So this is a far cry from what we used to do, which was rodeos. Uh, in 2017 and earlier. So we're making really good steps. Another big step that I'll talk about before I, before I stop here is the U.S. Air Force Expeditionary Center is returning to its roots. As you know, it's a subordinate NAF to me, but it is the Air Force Expeditionary Center. And it is returning to its roots as the Expeditionary Warfare Center. You may have known it as that back, back in the day. It's like the Air, the air Warfare Center at Nellis. What, is what they do for air superiority is what we're, we're doing at the Expeditionary Warfare Center for expeditionary operations for the high end, right? How is it we're gonna do logistics under attack? The, the, uh, the, the air, uh, Agile Combat Employment, right? We have to train for the higher end. So, you know, you, we used to go there, get our top off training for rollovers and small unit tactics before going down to come AOR. Now they're turning for the Air Force as to how to, how to develop multi-capable airmen to do distributed operations uh, in, in the two theaters of consequence. So that is a big deal. We're looking at our platforms, our air mobility operations wings, which are our nodes around the world to see how they have to change and how our contingency forces have to change to meld to that idea uh, of, uh, of agile combat employment into the future. So there, there's a lot going on with how we're shaping the people to get ready uh, for this fight. Yeah, well, thanks for that. That's a very uh, in-depth answer. And some of these things you you touched upon already um, and you alluded to the, the uh, changing uh, culture and, and arguably that's one of the most difficult things one can do as a leader. Uh, and I, you mentioned some of the organizational adaptations that you're making to encourage this culture change are there any others that you'd like to, to highlight? Yeah, I, you know, I think those, those are some of the key ones. I, I think all of our organizations, we just underwent the largest organ, reorganization of our air operating center ever, right? And, and so we think about how we're going to, uh, you know, we're on the global operating model. That's what our C2 center does, right? But we're not used to using the online of sight to get a hold of our airplanes, right? We are instilling the online of sight. We are instilling tactical data link. Uh, it, as, as one of the resilient ways that we're going to contact our air crews on the road. So we are really reorganizing that. And frankly, our AOC had been over the decades sort of moving away, becoming more efficient, and it's what we needed to do for that particular fight. But we've been moving away from, from um, ACC's AOCs, right, for the rest of the Air Force. And so we made a check right uh, to try to rejoin with uh, the mobility air forces with the CAF with respect to command and control. 
And so there's a lot of process stuff there. There's a lot of data that we're working with that and, and trying to determine how do we make better decisions and how do we leverage the work that's already been done in PEO Digital to get after decision-making that we're already doing, you know, in the new AOC, right? And, and the testing that they're doing at, at the Air Warfare Center. How do we leverage that right now? So we're doing a little catch up on that, but our teams are pretty excited that we were unleashing them on those problem sets and they are moving out at a pace. So we're sort of relearning what we did with AOC Next inside our AOC. But again, it's another, another tangible uh, uh, evaluation of what we're doing and how we're getting after the high end fight. Oh, very good. Now, one of the primary objectives that uh, you identified in your speech last fall, and you, you tangentially mentioned it here a minute ago, um, was to maximize full spectrum readiness. Um, can you expand a bit on what this would look like in practice for uh, AMC? Yeah, so I, I know from the people of platform processes, I talked a lot about the people. Let me talk a little bit about what we're doing with our platforms. Okay, those are those are airplanes, and it's our it's our CR forces, and it's our AOC. For one, you probably heard about predictive maintenance. Uh, I know Warren talked about it. Uh, a theory of constraints and conditions-based maintenance. AMC is leading the fleet for that. And frankly, we've done some great work. And our and our KC-135 fleet, in fact, at Fairchild, uh, they took. Uh, an inspection which took 52 calendar days and they moved it and they made uh, a system where they did it in five days, in five days. They added 1500 availability days to our 135 clock at Fairchild. That's, now that's one of our largest tanker bases, right? That's the largest KC-135 tanker base. But this is how our airmen are thinking differently about how we have to get after the problem and phasing uh, of the maintenance of this legacy airplane. And we put sensors on airplanes. We already are seeing a return on investment for the C-5 and the KC-135 to predict when the airplane is going to fail. Because especially when we think about distributed operations, we can't afford to fail at that austere environment. We've got to be able to know when we think those parts are going to fail and have the, the, the supplies available to be able to swap them out before they do. So we are learning a lot about that. And like I said, on TAC data link, it's not just our AOC, but our weapon systems. You know, we have various versions of tactical data link and battle space awareness capabilities on niche fleets, right? Not everybody. We're pretty used to just flying out there and finding a tactical C2 center to tell us what to do. That may not be the case in the future. So we've got to bring battle space awareness aboard our airplane. I tell you, I, I, we are in the near term, we're not doing anything scientific. As a matter of fact, we're opening up WRM and pulling out PRIC-117 radios that have been sitting in there, and we're trying to MacGyver them onto KC-10s and 135s just so that we can get the connection. Why? So those empowered airmen could, could help us determine what the final state needs to be. They need to be able to play it. Once, once they see where they are in the battle space, like they're seeing in the simulators that they can't see in the airplane right now, which is interesting because I do a DMO sim, and you get in the airplane, you have nothing, right? Okay, so we're going to start with what we can solve right now, and that's and that's what we're doing. We're making attack data like a second language, uh, and and but frankly, we're getting there because industry has been very helpful. They've been sort of helping us show the way on what they've been doing with other cockpits, what's been available, what can we buy right now and experiment with, and they've also been helpful with us with software. You know, we have a software factory called Conjure uh, here at AMC, but we also have been leveraging what everyone else has been doing, and, and you've seen the results or heard about the results maybe in CENTCOM with um, 
platform called Jigsaw. It's an app that optimizes the air refueling scheme of maneuver, comes up with COAs, and it helps you decide on the right one for that day. Well, you know, in the ATO, it takes us takes multiple hours to do that right now without Jigsaw. And if a Jigsaw, you could just keep running instantiations all the time. As your scheme of maneuver changes, you can keep rerunning it and optimize. And that, and that has allowed us to bring airplanes home. It saved us quite a bit of gas and, and time on the airplane and time on our cruise. So we're going with more of that. You know, how do we're trying to do that with airlift? How do we do that better with all the forces that we have? How do we do that better with patients and where, and where we have? So that that's another kind of a platform change. But along those lines, we think about the process piece. I think about what what, uh, what Warren was talking about on transitioning to a pull logistics versus you know going from pull logistics model to a push logistics model. And that's, you know, now that we have the data, right, you have a lot of data, you can swim in that data, or you can actually use it. So how do we turn algorithms to be able to use that data to make better sense about, to make better sense on the CBM plus and, and, uh, and the readiness uh, levels of the airplanes? How do you make more sense, again, before you start moving? Logistics, we're in the physics business. Before the physics start, like Jigsaw, how do I make better decisions? And when the physics are going, how do I dynamically retask uh, better? And as you know, we're doing in, in the capability development model, we got to experiment, learn, experiment, learn, fail if we have to, and keep that going. And that ought to be the norm. And only when we, when we see what the art of the possible is, which is why we look at our digitally adept airmen, and I say, Aaron, you don't have to be able to code, but you have to understand what's out there logarithmic-wise. Don't you understand that Waze is simply just AI telling a human what to do? How do we use that kind of thing? Look at what industry is offering it. You know, when you go to ATA and AFA, look what they're offering and see how we can use it the best on the process side. So that's how, because we have to have credible capacity. Capacity mean uh, keeping those older airplanes airborne, but it's got to be credible. They got to be connected, scalable, interoperable. Uh, and so those are the two pieces and you got to have the mindset that you have to go after that. So that's a lot, but, uh, but you know, we are, we're actually making great strides and, you know, we're celebrating all those great strides along the way uh, for our airmen. No, that's great to hear. I mean, I like compliment you on uh, your initiatives and enthusiasm and in working with what you have uh, to get this future. Um, your example with Waze is a, a very apropos uh, and I think uh, resonates with the audience. Now, the scenario that you described earlier illustrated some of the ways and you elaborated on this some of your comments already uh, in how you envision AMC was, is gonna employ traditional weapon systems in non-traditional ways. Uh, but let me ask you this, some people wonder if mobility aircraft can execute these additional functions, should they, given all the demands on the mobility force? Yeah, so Dave, I've heard, I've heard that discussion and, and frankly the concerns about what you turn mobility airplanes into should you actually do something out of the box. Well, I would say, why wouldn't we look at the competition that we're in right now? You know, why wouldn't we change the calculus by doing different things, right? Moving away from the antiquated view that AMC just brings stuff uh, when they're called um, to being and an outside the threat wing to be a maneuver force to support inside the threat wing, because that's really where we're going. So like I, I've already talked about how we would use tankers as nodes in the network. We're, we're doing it with C-17s now. Our last uh, experiment had a C-17 
as the forward um, uh, node to do crunching of data, the, the, the platform, the network forward. We happened to just, it was, it was on the ground, but we showed that a C-17 with the current setup of antennas could do that work, right? So why wouldn't we put that on all the airplanes, right? If it's just a carry-on, we've got the size, weight, and power. You probably know that, uh, that the KC-46 has been selected for the capability release one for the advanced battle management system. That's a pod on the airplane, and it's and it's going to be able to do C2. And again, when I think about not just C2, how do we process data forward and make that available? But I also think about more what you were talking about, which, which is what else could you do? And we have experimented already with um, mass fires, you know, attributable mass. What does that mean for the mobility forces? And for us right now, we look at the SOCOM model uh, that they're doing with the C-130s, and we think to ourselves, how can you do that with C-17s? What if you had a platform that could eject uh, jasms out of the back of the airplane? Not that I would see to them, but how do you how do you then you inform and have global strike manage that? Right, we're just a platform. Instead of dropping them on a ramp somewhere uh, at some island, we're just dropping them in the sky. And and after they drop out of the sky, someone else lights them off and takes them to the target. We're actually doing in the next on uh, on the next ABMS uh, capability um, experiment. Uh, we are doing a, a C2 example where how are we going to C2 uh, that platform when it comes out of the back of the airplane. So incrementally, we're getting active. We've dropped an inert weapon already, right? So we're, we're thinking about the key pieces of this puzzle so that we can provide a tritable mass uh, if they need it. We're also looking at, you know, out of the box. So what about those cargo gliders that, that are a glider in a box? That you get that go a little further than our GPS guided shoes. Why wouldn't we use those to support soft or to support the Marines with some sort of resupply? You know, um, why wouldn't we? You've seen maybe heard some work about gremlins. You know, let's think about how we can better get uh, DCA and OCA attributables that are launched out of the back of a C-17 or C-5 that actually could be recaptured and rearmed on board a C-17. Um, that's flying outside the kinetic threat ring, right? So why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't we think about launching those returnable decoys and being part of that formation? Uh, as opposed to a ground launch, we would do an air launch. So those are the kinds of things that we're thinking about. Don't, you know, again, we're, we're, we're doing the pieces up. We're not going to solve everything at once. What we want to know is in these experiments and in the futures games where these are playing, do they make a difference? And so we're going after that analytically and some of the key problems we have to solve to get there. Uh, and from that, we'll learn whether or not we want to proceed. Well, again, I, I applaud your answer. And, you know, uh, some of us have been advocating for just what you described for decades now. And um, if I might offer, and I know it's difficult uh, in, 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 you're not just supporting, if you could get rid of the support word and talk about creating necessary effects in the battle space, um, that might help get people to recognize the transition and the transformation that you're taking AMC through uh, to be an integral element of any fight in the future, uh, particularly as it involves uh, near peer threats. Uh, and and I, I, I just applaud you for, for what you're doing. So before we open the discussion up to the audience um, for their questions, is there anything else that you'd like to share about the future of uh, AMC? 
Yeah, so thanks, Dave. Look, you know, first, I appreciate your time. We're going to come out with a with a white paper in conjunction with your team there that really lays more of this out and how we need to be more connected and interoperable uh, with uh, the joint force, providing that resiliency to ensure the effects of the joint force um, and the fact that we have to bring that credible capacity. And, and that just means the platforms need to be relevant, right? And what are the tweaks we need to do to make it relevant to ensure that we can execute at pace and scale necessary to win uh, the future fight. And I think about, you know, the information sphere, you've been talking about this, we, we have to be able to use it better. We have to do decision work at Echelon. How do I, how do I empower our airmen and, and give them that information so they can enhance their decision-making at Echelon. But in the end, we're not gonna be able to do this uh, alone. Uh, you know, we don't have huge budgets to go experiment. What I'm looking for is, uh, you know, support from industry, to, to look at these hard problems and help us think through and, and the ways that we can get after and how we leverage uh, other services and, and what they're learning along the way. So, and, and academia partnerships as well that I'm looking at. In fact, I'm also looking at Congress, right? I'm looking for predictable funding and support for these kinds of ideas. You know, not the, you know, hey, we don't think you should do that because, you know, it's not normal or that would make you a, you know, a target you know, look, we're already a target. I think I think you know that in a lot of the war games, who are they going to go after? They're going to go after the tankers and the airlifters because that's that's the supply line. But we also need help from from uh, Congress to ensure that that we can recapitalize and right size the capabilities necessary to be ready and relevant for the future. Uh, and we just need that time and capacity to experiment. And you know. Frankly, we'd like, like a little more flexibility of funds such, a, such that when you find something, you can experiment and scale uh, so that you can make great effect as, as early as possible. And then today, again, I hope that, you know, uh, that this is just the beginning of the discussion uh, with Air Mobility Command and the effects that we can, that we can promulgate across the force uh, by thinking outside of the box. Again, with not a lot of huge changes, but, you know, we are, we are solidly uh, back on a path uh, to ensure that the joint force will be successful. And when I say joint force, it's air force and the joint force. Don't, don't, be, uh, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not just supporting the Army and the Navy. I am supporting the Air Force as well. Well, very good. And uh, thanks, General Van Ovost, uh, for sharing your insights on such an incredible range of uh, important and fascinating uh, topics. So on behalf of uh, the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies and all of AFA, um, we really wish you all the very best as you uh, deal with these uh, challenges uh, that frankly affect the security and well-being of every American. So as a quick reminder to our listeners, our next event is this coming uh, Friday, April 2nd, when we'll be hosting Major General Lauterbach in a new edition of our Space Power Series. We're now going to open the session to uh, questions and answers from the uh, audience. As a reminder to our listeners, uh, please uh, state your uh, name and the uh, uh, organization that you're uh, affiliated with. And so we will go first to Brian uh, Everstein. Brian? Uh, yep, this is Brian with Air Force Magazine. General, good to talk to you again. Thanks for taking the time. I was hoping to follow the thread on modernizing and meeting future joint force needs. How does that feed into your requirements for a future C-17 follow-on? How can the drive for JADC2 and some of the other services discussions on their futures drive those requirements? Yeah, Brian, that's a great question. So it's a good follow-on because you know, we're thinking about what's the next, you know, heavy cargo capability 
or family of systems that we might need out into the future, right? Uh, as we look into what capabilities I'm asking when I uh, work with uh, the Marine Corps and the Army, what is it they need to transport over what types of timelines, what kinds of capabilities, and, and where might they be positioned? So certainly the war games that we're doing, the joint concept for contested logistics is, is a key piece of how we do the global laydown and what we expect to move forward. And I think that's absolutely going to define the box that we need to be in. But I'm not, I mean, I look at that, you know, people think just volume. I don't just think volume. I also think ability to do things inside the contested zone for small, for small things like, like, you know, uh, uh, gliders in a box, right? Uh, launched out of, a, out of a capability. So how do you think small as well? How do you think things that are small that can fly off of a large thing and bring a capability forward to say AFSOC or to the army when they need it? So th those will absolutely be the things. And as we go forward and we do these core games, that's how we're going to tweak the attributes necessary for the next, if you will, you know, kind of a combined C5, C17 into the future. And on your current C17 fleet, a few years ago, AMC announced a fleet management effort. Uh, have you seen any results of that and on moving on to predictive maintenance? How can that guide the length of your C17 and a possible slip? Yeah, I tell you that um, we are very focused on uh, conditions-based maintenance or the predictive maintenance necessary for us to understand how long um, the, the C-17 uh, can continue to fly with us out into the future. And we're optimistic on, on analysis, but this requires a continuing study for what would be what we would have to do to that airplane. So I'd say that we are, you know, we're cautiously optimistic about the lifespan of the airplane. But it, again, in the future, we'll, we'll see what the actual attributes, you know, beyond, say, the 2060 time frame, which is sort of what we are, we're, we're thinking about uh, for the end, end of life for the C-17, how much further we could take it or what we really need to look like. Because frankly, it's very hard for me to even say, you know, what's going to happen in 20 years. I mean, this is, you know, this is real. It's really pretty far out there to think about the full replacement of the C-17. Okay, let me give you one, uh, General, from our chat room. This is from J.R. Reed. How is there excess airlift capacity available during conflict, especially a peer conflict, to use C-17s or C-130s for treatable UAV delivery and recovery? History has shown airlift is already highly strained during conflict. It would seem you would need more airlift or maybe a dedicated unmanned manned arsenal aircraft to execute that concept of operation. Yeah, Mr. Reed, I would say that, you know, first of all, we're still, we're still working the concept and we're, we're looking at how it plays in, in, in the game. The, the name of the game is to, at, at lower costs, provide mass on target and how we would do that. And you know, right now I consider the B-52 to be our arsenal plane. It can carry a heck of a lot, uh, but, Frankly, you know, palletized munitions, that's quite the load uh, if you can eject that out of the back of the airplane and get those things flying and, and could really provide even a loiterable capability out there that, that would even be better than what the arsenal plane could, could provide. But I get your point, right? And this is what I've heard. Hey, you're going to need every C-17 you have to fly a bunch of stuff. Well, remember the next fight. The next fight will not be an iron buildup at Kadena or an iron buildup at Ramstein. Uh, the, the next fight is gonna be just in time. 
and and it, I think the the intensity is going to be much shorter. It's a shorter period of time. So you either you've deterred or you haven't with the first package that goes over, right? And so we really have to think about how we're going to use the airplanes in the future and what warfare is going to look like in the future. It'll start, you know, in in space and cyber. It'll start in the policy realm and disinformation realm, and then. You know, do we really think we're going to spend four months in the buildup? That's where the C-17s are needed. If we're not going to do that, what else would you do to deter and stop and, and go after the strategy and no, not go after the attrition warfare that was that buildup warfare that we were planning at? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does to me. That's a great answer. It's uh, all about effects-based warfare as opposed to traditional annihilation and attrition-based warfare. Let's turn to Lee Hudson. Hi, thanks for doing this. Uh, I know you mentioned um, using aircraft as communications nodes. And I know in the past there's been talk about using the KC-46. Uh, do you envision that explaining, expanding to other aircraft or platforms? Yeah, Lee, that's, that's a great question. I absolutely believe uh, that all the platforms need to be connected uh, to provide the resilient and interoperable pathways, not just for air mobility, but to be able to, to allow F-35s and F-22s to talk, to be able to talk to the Valkyrie and to have you know, resilient forward nodes that can process data and send out orders because we know we're gonna be degraded. Now we're using the KC-46 because it has the pipes. It's got antennas. Uh, we've already scanned for a pod that would be, that, that pod would be interchangeable uh, with the other airplanes. In other words, I, I, I envision that the KC-135 would also have a pod. And frankly, the, the what's inside the pod can change as well from a C2 nod node to a secure processing to, you know, maybe defensive capabilities, right? I, I, we're just, we're working out a pod that's got the size, weight, and power, and then all the different things that you could do with that pod. So we have it now in the KC-46, I should say that we're experimenting with that because it's got a good capability on board, but that's not gonna limit us even with our 1960s KC-135 because we have pods placement, as you know, with the uh, multi-point refueling, we've got power out there and we absolutely could use it for that. Again, we've done data processing forward on the C-17. We've done, we've moved HIMARS on C-17, meaning the, the artillery system for the Marine Corps is already plugged into our beyond line of sight antenna on the C-17 and it receives new target data so that when it lands, it can get off the airplane, shoot and get back on the airplane and move before being killed. Again, that's how, when we think about all the air, that's why it's a force multiplier having this capability on board those airplanes. Okay, how about uh, Teresa Hitchens? Thank you. Thank you for doing this, General. My question relates to the implementation of the joint warfighting concept and the, specifically the part about contested logistics. And you've been talking quite a lot about that. One of the issues I would think for Air Mobility Command would be um, survivability, just survivability of the aircraft in you know the ADAR kind of you know, situation. Um, and can you talk about how you think about or you're experimenting with trying to improve that that um, survivability. And, and secondly, the question of attributables have, are, are you, this is related with, with contested logistics, are you looking at 
for example, having self-defense drones on your on your airplanes as a as part of the survivability package. Have you done any kind of experiment with that? Can you talk about that a little? Thank you. Thanks, Teresa. That's something I think about all the time. Is as we become a more uh, congested and contested out there, both kinetically and unkinetically, I have to think about EMP, electromagnetic pulse, uh, against the airplane. I have to think about you know you know where's the get well, where's the truth data, which is why the online site and line of sight capabilities are important because if if somebody in the network's got the truth data, they then all the rest of the folks in the network can quickly get back up to speed with the truth data. So when I think about survivability, we often think about uh, you know um, projectiles coming at our airplane, right? A kinetic survivability. So when we think about kinetics, I, I do think about you know right now you can have a two ship doing de uh, defensive counter air for you, uh, and that could be sort of a waste of a cap, uh, you know, around each high value asset, not just you know mobility, but frankly our you know our other large aircraft that are out there supporting the war fight. But the number one thing we have to have to help our survivability is battle space awareness. And like I said, right now, majority of our fleet takes off and they have zero real battle space awareness. So the first thing we need to know is where is the fight? What is happening? Do I need to turn around? And just merely having battle space awareness means I'm, we're gonna be more resilient and we have more options to make decisions to survive. Secondly, if you're connected in a network, everybody will know that that missile is airborne and where it's headed to. So now I may, I may not need fighters immediately by our aircraft. Perhaps they can intercept it forward of, of the aircraft. Or like you said, we can have defensive counter air attributables that are either on the wings that could, you know, that could launch out and do a headshot or simply uh, uh, electronic warfare in those pots so that we can get, you know, we can get coverage and we can deflect the missile through electronic warfare. You may be aware that we have some, um, um, we have some laser countermeasures on some of our large airplanes, but they're not going to be effective with the types of threats we're seeing airborne. So again, having electronic warfare in those pods, having situation awareness, that's number one, we got to have that. And two, your discussion about having attributables or frankly, we have hard points on the C-17. We have hard points on the KC-46. Not a hard stretch to think that we could put one or two missiles on there for self-defense for ourselves. So again, this is just, just the evolution, but being connected in that network gives us more options than we've had before for self-defense. And yes, we've been looking at high value aircraft self-defense in, in all, all kinds of different ways and not just uh, a single domain, but in multiple domains. Uh, uh, and I, I really can't talk much more about that, but that is that has been on our mind. Can I just uh, follow up quickly? Do you have ex any experiments with the tritables coming up in the near term? So uh, we do have an experiment with um, a, a simulated a JASM a missile, which would be the palletized munitions. Uh, we are going to do uh, a, a drop uh, to, to understand the C2 and and the physics necessary to actually make the, the system work, the system that's going to pull it out of the airplane and separate it and get it ready for, for launch. So that's the, sort of our next step with palletized munitions, which you know we call you know attributables mm -hmm. in that way. But I don't have any defensive counter air attributables that we're working with. Thank you. All right, let's turn to uh, uh, Oriana Pollock. 
Hi, ma'am. Thanks for doing this. Um, so I know a little bit on the theme of logistics under attack. I'd like to keep going with that. Um, I understand that uh, AMC held one uh, exercise in the fall exercise, nodal lightning. I'm curious if you could speak about some lessons learned from that, since I believe you're gearing up for the second iteration of that exercise coming up. I think it was in Germany. So, you know, what what are airmen focused on for logistics under attack and what are they training for? Yeah, we're kind of still along the same lines of how, how do we connect into that network and understand what's going on and be a false force multiplier uh, for, you know, in one case, the Marine Corps, but really for all the services as they bring in their service concept for fighting, right? So we did learn that, you know, we can process data forward uh, in a node and, and dispense it, okay? We did learn that we can be a C2 node and, and move along orders and make changes to orders and provide, you know, target quality coordinates to our sister services and to, and to the Air Force, we learned that we can join up uh, our, our fifth gen aircraft along with the Tritables uh, uh, that, to be able to speak to each other and to be able to give orders out to them. So these, we're, we're taking these in a stepwise fashion. This is all about the, the architecture of the advanced battle management system. And, and But what we're doing is we're scoping to things that, you know, uh, uh, chewing this a bite at a time on things that we think we absolutely can do and the next steps on experimentation. We'll be doing quite a bit of experimentation in our Mobility Guardian 21 series coming up here in May, where we will have field artillery, we'll have defensive counter air, uh, and we will have uh, scenarios where we will need to ingress, uh, provide humanitarian assistance, uh, and get out and transmit data forward and crunch data forward for the elements in that formation. So it's, it's quite exciting, the, the progress that we've made uh, and then what we want to do right now is we're trying to determine what the requirements are going to be. Because again, we, we have systems and we're looking at capabilities and experimentation, but we're trying to design what the requirements might be and expose ourselves to what the services are trying to do and show them how we can be more effective for them as their maneuver force. Okay, Pat Host. Hello, ma'am. Pat Host from Jane's. Hey, I was really interested in your remark on the Jigsaw app. I was wondering uh, what division of the Air Force created this? How often do you use it? How long have you been using it? Do you use it on like a phone or a tablet computer or do you use it on a laptop? Are there any other missions or tasks that you're using this for? Thanks. Thanks. So, so essentially what Jigsaw is, it's an optimization routine. And, and this is, uh, you know, it's been a little long. It's been about a two year thing come along with our PEO digital friends uh, and our, uh, our software folks, uh, uh, you know, the software factory that we like to call Conjure, which is focused on mobility, uh, mobility issues, getting decision advantage for mobility issues. And we went down to um, uh, AFSENT, down into uh, Central Command AOR and that, so a team initially launched there to find out what the problem is and walk through the problem with the operators, the typical bring an engineer with an operator with a software person. And they've been iterating on that. So essentially it, it is an optimization software that allows us to go through many, um, different uh, course, uh, course of action analysis to come up with the optimum based on the current situation versus taking a, a much longer cycle, which is what we did. And then that saved us in the amount of flying we had to do, the amount of airplanes that we launched because we could be more efficient and effective at the same time. 
So that's the kind of thing we want to scale into theater logistics, uh, into um, airlift, in fact, into patient movement and the things that we have to do for physics. And frankly, what are the best locations to be able to, re to recover uh, 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 our fighter airplanes and do integrated combat turns? So that's so it's a sample of a capability that we need to continue to work on. So for us as PEO Digital, which is, is, has been working with our operating centers, not just the 618th, but the Air Force operating centers on, on different algorithms to, to work on the air tasking order uh, as well, right? So we're kind of doing this in concert with them. And, and uh, like I talked about, we're trying to bring the operating centers together and share what we've learned and bring it together on that data infrastructure that we'll call advanced um, battle management system. It, uh, it can be run on a laptop. It's not clear to me what we're doing. And actually, if we're doing it on a laptop, but it's just an example, it's meant to be an app that takes advantage of the data flows. And our job is to get more and more of that logistics data flow uncovered so that we can think about how to best optimize in different ways that we really haven't even thought about before because we didn't have access to the data. Thanks, ma'am. How about Garrett running? Hi, hi, General. Uh, yeah, my question uh, is a bit of a clarification uh, as well as a, a follow-up. The clarification is when you talk about the KC-46 or the C-17 being an, a node uh, in your communications network, um, and you talk about resiliency, are you speaking to them as if they are redundant nodes or backup nodes and you would rely on something else primarily um, in that uh, these are sort of fallbacks? Um, or are they more, you know, your main channel communications? And then the second question is, you know, why, why focus on adding this capability on these um, tankers or cargo aircraft instead of putting it on something more dedicated and uh, that has longer endurance, maybe like a UAV? Right. So, so that, that's a great question. So let me start with, with the, the nodes discussion. So right now, uh, we, we use Blayon line of sight just now in, in, their, in their air operating center to be able to contact our aircraft, right? Otherwise, we would go through a commercial system to try to contact our airplanes. So some of it is primary, but it's also a resilient backup, right? Because we, you know, we hope to have tactical C2, but frankly, we don't always have tactical C2. So it would become the primary node because you have a beyond line of sight capability, a capability on the site within the mini network to, to produce and, and push forward orders that are sent through perhaps even a low data rate capability because maybe some satellites are out, right? It, it, so this, in, in some cases it'd be resilient, in some cases it may be the only node still surviving uh, based on an EMP or, or the fact that we have low data rate because some satellites are out, right? And, and when I think about where our airplanes are, they are forward in the fight. And so why wouldn't we put a capability that's a, that's a pod that, that fits on the airplane or that rolls onto the airplane because we have the size, weight, and power to do it. We're out there anyway. We have been, um, we, we've learned from a, a C2 system we had on when we were, we were in Afghanistan. We've learned a lot from that capability and, and how we can, and we're, we're actually, we were actually forward flying not as an air fueling asset, but as a C2 node uh, in Afghanistan and many times because we were the only C2 node available. So, so in that case, we're complementary, but we know we're going to be contested and degraded. So we, we have to be able to be there to form a part of that mesh network. And, and certainly if we could have a lot of returnables or, or UAVs that have all this stuff on it at all times, 
you know, that'd be great. But we're there anyway. And right now the size, weight and power on those, on the, on the, uh, on the predators and whatnot, we're, we're maxing them out. Right. And they're not, they're going to be forward. They're not going to be where we need to be. So we're just taking advantage of what we have right now to make the drug force better, Garrett. All right. Thank you. How about Richard Abbott? Hi, thank you. Richard Abbott from Defense Daily. Can you tell us uh, what is the status of resolving the KC-46 tankers Category 1 deficiencies? Uh, sure, Richard. Uh, we have four open Category 1 deficiencies uh, on the on the KC-46. Two of them are boom-related, uh, and then um, one is a, a work that we're doing on a, on a manifold, uh, which we have a solution for and are working towards cleaning that up and getting that retrofit onto the airplane. We've seen great progress in the last year of getting after the deficiency reports on the airplane. And as you may have heard, we are doing some interim capability releases now. In other words, we are, we are working towards flying the airplane on taskable lines for US Transportation Command uh, within the current restrictions that we have on the airplane. So in other words, we, we cannot uh, go to full operational cap capability for the airplane just yet, but we can do some things. And what we're doing is maximizing our capacity to do so. So we are setting the airplane out. It is doing fighter drags. Um, it certainly um, is fully cleared to do the drogue refueling, which is mainly Navy refueling. And we have been fueling uh, F-16s in, in exercises and red flag, and we've done some uh, dragging overseas. So we haven't forward deployed them, but where our crews are becoming more capable and more confident in the system and the limitations that it has right now. But the flying that we're doing right now operationally will in no way uh, slow down uh, our resolving of the deficiencies, which mainly reside in the boom itself and the boom vision system itself. We're working together with, uh, with Boeing on the new boom vision system. And actually we're gonna uh, pretty close in now, slap the table on the actual design, and we're hoping to see some uh, hardware airborne inside a year. All right, real quick, General, if you don't mind, uh, if you could hang around for about three or four more minutes, we can get the rest of these questions on folks. Sure. Uh, let me turn now to a retired Major General Ken Israel. Okay, well, uh, fascinating. I didn't want to miss a chance to speak to the two brightest people that I've heard today. You know, I go back to my dad at AMC working for PK Carlton, so uh, boy, what a transition from there to where you are today. Uh, as uh, General Deptua knows, I'm uh, really fascinated with uh, unmanned vehicles. And I think with Gremlin, uh, there is a tremendous amount of possibilities there. And, you know, I was asking, uh, I think Teresa Hutchins mentioned about uh, having things to enhance your survivability. You know, we can use these UAVs as kamikaze assets. You know, I think of satellites that have iBots around them. And if you have that mindset, using a KC-46 like a satellite, there are a lot of things. I mean, you could have some punch. You, you could have a fist out there and punch the bad guys. And I just wish you, because you have so much energy, I just wish you'd get behind it. Thank you, ma'am. So I, I agree. I agree. I, I agree that we could have, yeah, I like the gremlins idea. I like to be able to rearm defensive counter air and frankly, offensive counter air by flying it into the back of the airplane and turning it and sending it back out and, and having it, having one uh, orbit around us so that it could be the head on shot. Okay. Tom Martin. Yeah. Thank you. Um, 
Uh, on the theme of, of contested mobility, um, is AMC giving serious consideration to rocket-based point-to-point cargo delivery? And Tom, I was waiting for that question. Uh, so the answer is uh, yes. Uh, U.S. Transportation Command, we've looked at uh, what point-to-point could do for us, and we're moving forward on point-to-point uh, space lift. It's just, but to Transcom, it's just going to be another motor node, right? Sea lift over the rail, over air, or over space. So we're going to work with the U.S. Space Force, who really are our launch experts, and 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 SpaceX to move forward with, you know, what that would look like. So we're doing some studies. Uh, and, and we're watching the testing that's occurring, which is very exciting, by the way. Uh, so I, I think in the future, you could see something like this, but so we will partner with the Space Force on what types of loads and what that would look like um, as part of the battlefield scheme of maneuver, but absolutely. Thank you. All right, um, last question to Mark Matthews. Good afternoon, General Van Obos, and uh, Dave, thanks. Uh, to close the loop on the, the tanker and the uh, node capability on the tankers, operational availability to make that viable would seem to require most, if not all the tankers have these nodes, these pods. Uh, along with that, uh, the KC-135 fleet, if I uh, understand it correctly, only a small fraction of that fleet modified to carry uh, a pylon that would host a pod. Is that the plan to put these uh, pods on all KC-135s and KC-46. So Mark, that's, that's a great point. So, you know, when we think about right now, our, our fleet is, is pretty small with uh, the capability to do this kind of thing. When we think about, you know, where the pods would be, you wouldn't always fly with a pod. We would use it in combat. We would, we would station them at different places so that you could roll in and pick them up. And the airplanes that, that did not have the, uh, the connections to be able to do that, would do other things, for example, you know, defending the homeland, right? So we would we would look at what portion of the fleet would would be relevant in that fight, in the high-end fight, and those are the ones that we would modify and then make available. As you know, we have several niche fleets, but this is going to expand out a little more. But you know, point well taken that we're not going to do this with every airplane. But then again, I don't need every airplane in that particular fight. I do need reserve to do other things here in the homeland. Uh, substantial bill, actually. All right. Well, we've come to the end of this uh, Aerospace Nation event. And uh, thanks again to uh, General Van Ovost, uh, to you, ma'am, and to our audience. And from all of us at Mitchell Institute, have a great aerospace power kind of day. <laughs>